Welcome back, War Horse Podcast, episode 31, June 21st, 2022. The website is goldengoatguild.net, Golden Goat Guild on Instagram. Later in this episode, as per the title, uh, James LaFond The second segment will be supplied for you, the listener. We're going to do the typical classic rambling, highly practical, highly speculative introductory monologue. And um, I imagine we'll, we'll tuck a concomitant corollary piece on the other side of the conclusion to the James LaFond dual episodes. So tomorrow I am scheduled to go meet with the one and only Mr. Daniel Winkler. I'll try and get some some video certainly some photos. Most importantly, I will try and get a a hard date on when our operator knives will be in hand. I have no way to know this. This is why I am going, and I also selfishly kind of want to check out the shop and meet Mr. Wiggler. Um, But I think this is our best bet. And this was the first opportunity, given recent portals past many passages. Uh, What else to report? I have, as, as mentioned in many episodes ago, I am still working out a couple of other collaborations, putting out fingers into some new stuff even. And, um, it looks like progress is being made, but we shall see before we open any of that up. As always, if you have questions, comments, that sort of shit, you can uh, go to the website again, goldengoatguild.net. Use the contact form. Or you can go to Instagram and you can DM me. No one yet has taken up the other side of the argument, which states, the novel King of Dogs is the best fucking novel um, of, of the decade. I'm saying, uh, you know, we're, I'm, I'm up to 12 years, actually, because it was released in uh, 
realistically 2020, though it came out December of 2019, just to establish the bona fides uh, as would regard COVID and the mass awakening of um, the imminent collapse. So we push that back to, you know, say 2010. I'm confident that nothing else touches it. Did the road come out in that era? If it did, then okay. You know, we'll share the mantle, the old man and I. I believe it came out. I think it did. I think that might have been. Well, anyway. Who cares? Until somebody picks up the other piece of that argument. As far as I know, um, yeah, it is the best novel of that era. And now we're pushing out into the next decade. So, hopefully, the avid warhorse absorber is not only 100% up to speed, say like Brian McKenzie levels, if not practice, at least knowledge, information, as would regard central nervous system seriousness. This is some serious, serious shit. All this other stuff about going to therapy, that's fine. Going to church is outstanding. Pumping iron, of course. Exercise, of course. However, in times such as ours, if you want to continue to screw around um, while the bead is being drawn on the capital T truth, fine. If not, and you're not up to speed on this stuff, you probably have to go back to the first episode. You probably have to subscribe at Patreon, which not nearly enough of you cheap bastards are doing. But for those of you who do, I love you, I appreciate you, I see you. And you are up to speed in terms of the information. So. I'm just going to keep running rather than rehash it once more. We will rehash it inevitably. I like to get things so compressed that I can get them down to a hand signal if necessary and not even use words. So I'm proposing that and this is beyond, you know, I think the scope of what Brian McKenzie is willing to go on record as um, advocating, believing, etc. I believe the central nervous system, insofar as this is comprised of um, the brainstem, the spine, the interaction of all these things, the brain as a receiver, and this you've seen the picture right where it's just nerves and it uh, it's just all of these stringy little they've actually dissected human corpses um, and 
separated all the meat and all the bone and everything until it's just simply this jellyfish-like um, series of strange white tendrils, which is your nervous system in its entirety, all of the nerves. There was this guy named Walter Russell who proposed that he was he was an amazing like phenomenal artist, one of these polymaths, and he took some major swings and probably had a few misses. And one of you know the unknowns to me was check him out. I'm not going to. Uh, he's got a couple of good books. There's a couple of good documentary sorts of uh, pieces out there on the intro net. But one of his suppositions, so he claimed that at some point in his, it actually is beyond half, I think he was 50 something. So well into his life he had, which he had never had, he had never claimed to have. He wasn't wandering around like um, trepanning himself, if you guys recall, like boring a hole into the side of his skull or, or otherwise doing batty stuff. But he claimed to have entered this 39-day period of revelation. And um, I don't know, something definitely happened. Uh, what it was, you know, you be the judge. In this mini epoch of revelation, he, he was downloaded big time with lots of very uh, unorthodox sorts of notions. One of them being that the heart is not simply a set of pumps and valves, but rather is what he termed, I believe, an atomic implosion device. So that's to say we're going to take a couple of similar big swings. We already have, but we'll continue to do it. If Rupert Sheldrake's morphic resonance is pretty much the case, then I would, which I think it is. And switching over to that, I don't think it's an entire worldview at all. It's like a, pardon me, a reorientation of the best thing that I've found, which is the panentheistic, not pantheistic, panentheistic orthodox worldview based on, on ritual passages, constant. And the Sheldrakean idea, we will review that, I suppose, assuming I can do it, is essentially that you're dealing with something like the realm of the spirit, aether, fire, what have you, the green grid, and that's what I like. And within this, within this dimension, there is a resonance of the past, a resonance of the future, a thing presumably that is resonating in that present. Not sure Sheldrake works time, works out, you know, quite how time, but my presumption would be that entities such as angels, demons, God, obviously, um, in that 
in, if, the, if it's just a basic breakdown like that, you can go much further into other types of entities if you wanted. Then clearly time is this construct and very likely as I've posited a, a sort of set, a, a set of training wheels essentially constituted over and against the experience of, of you and I as being humans. Some of us clearly have different types of experience. Nothing could be more clear to all of us at this point than that. This morphic resonance, let's just say, resonates down to the level of biology such that, for example, a father and a son do not necessarily need to communicate every last bit and piece of themselves to each other to understand. Uh, clearly, for you know, the son is the sponge in this analogy. The father, and if you had a father, which I'm sure most of you did, no offense meant if you didn't, well, that's an interesting point, right? Even if you didn't, um, let's say you did not grow up around your father, like in close proximity, the resonance of your father still exists. The resonance of all fathers, for that matter, still exists. To what shade and degree? Who knows? I think therein would enter personal power. What in this other dimension are you doing? What are you amassing? What are you cordoning off and you know squirreling away? How are you doing that? The micro covens right now, as ditzy and um, fluffy as much of it may seem, I guarantee you, even screwing around are if they're if they're say aware in belief of such possibilities, they're probably whooping your ass if you are not at least laying out the blue towel, breaking down the Glock, cleaning and oiling your weapons on what, a, um, a bi-monthly schedule? Do whatever you want. That's, the, that's, that's what it means to build into time. Episode 29, there was this delightful meme, I suppose, graphic that was forwarded to me by a um, friend and subscriber, I presume, on uh, one of the social media sites. And, uh, you know, it was like, what the fuck are you talking about in episode 29? This is, this is what I'm talking about. That's what building into time means building in that and let's say let's extend the metaphor even further to say writing your song within that resonance so backtracking a little bit central nervous system is some type of a tuning fork the brain ball of of jelly which we know large portions of it can be absolutely fucking removed you can drill a hole in your in your skull gush out a bunch of blood, radically change the pressure in your head, and 
you can you can be stabbed through your hand. You can be shot. You can the bullet can pass from one side to the other. And there are documented cases of the dude going, okay. You could literally do the thing. What's the movie where the guy sticks the uh, chopstick or something? Like you, it'll come to me, but not now, or I'll lose absolute total train of thought here. By the way, Riker Riker uh, um, has joined us once again for this episode. Good boy, good boy, Riker. So. The brain as receiver as opposed to, what, some uh, silly fucking globule um, based on unknown synaptic activity and storage methods. Absolutely unfucking proven. Riddled with contradictions and honestly utterly fucking ridiculous. Do I want to test it with my brain? Fuck no. But... If outside of trauma, if we are still looking to the medical, the allopathic medical establishment to solve our problems, then honestly, just bend the fuck over and take the Antichrist in the ass, get the, get the barcode or the social credit score, whatever it is that you fear, how, that's, there's a lot of fear, a lot of it, a lot of leverage comes out of decades upon decades of building out the the fallacy of authority, you know, the, what do they call it, the lab coat phenomenon, all of this sort of stuff. So, back to morphic resonance, relating to this etheric fire notion as opposed to I you know it's materialism it's all the sort of things I always think of the the scenes in movies where they try to reproduce some uh, some come up on hallucinogens there'll be like a, a quick cut to a bunch of ants scurrying over like some you know some rotted meat or something and um it's brilliant because, I mean, I, you probably had that experience. I know I have many times. Like, what in the holy fuck are these little creatures? Why are they living this way? What is their purpose? Why do they militate this way? Um, if morphic resonance is the case, then it explains things like hives. Um, a corruption of hives and collective hysterias and all these sorts of it doesn't explain in in you know entirety but right now there's almost zero explanation well it just simply happens it's a contagion of some sort like really pull that apart next time you hear it really pull apart what I believe is an excellent descriptive term, the notion of the NPC. Really pull apart the egregore. And um, you, if you're like me, you know, you sense, you observe your mind going back to find footing in some rationalist um, anchor. And the anchor 
is an illusion. There is no fucking anchor. You, you already live in massive, overwhelming, an ocean of uncertainism. The way back for all of us is to build into time. You know, that would be like swimming in this mini metaphor um, and creating the context that we, that we have discussed in terms of Van Gennep and which was alluded to uh, with Odysseus. We'll segue over there in just a second. My contention is that you can, you can play around with this idea. If you can find a baseline for your central nervous system through breath work, it's all there. It's $5, you cheap shits. I'm just kidding, of course. I'm not. Um, you can also go to Brian McKenzie, but he won't contextualize it or frame it this way. Though he has, he has alluded to a few, um, a few very interesting factoids. And I don't think that, I think that he's, you know, like all of us, uh, living with an avoidance pattern, as he himself termed it, that is intimately linked with this idea of the rationalist anchor, if you will. And uh, a big piece of ritual, you know, is to replace the, ra is to replace, it's, it's a new anchor. It's a new set of anchors that you control. It's your individual system of value. And as you build into time, which is, it is a thing. It's not an absolute illusion. It's part of your experience. And you will know that if you have a big enough passage, if you pass through a significant enough portal um, or if you can manage the incredibly rare experience of uh, meditating on your own death long enough such that uh, it's it's many dimensions uh, the magnitude of what's presupposed there begins to dawn on you and then you can handle your own the response that will inevitably explode from your own consciousness ego the self what have you it's at that point if you get there it's not ex it's not entirely clear let's say so in terms of testing it you know your baseline and um you have some skill with let's say mm, manipulating that baseline up down a little bit and if you have some time you also need a dog of course you need a dog if you don't have a dog god help you at this point seriously you i i have to admit i i've had two cats i think i've admitted this before um one of whom was clearly an ascended master and the other one was not <laughs> so i'm not entirely sure how cats would if they would help you with this but you th the proposition is that you can you can get a read you can sort of tune your own baseline off of dogs you need to know the dog the dog itself if it's been neglected or if it's been bred and trained to do certain things such as fight it may or may not 
um, let's say resonate, you know, uh, what's the other word that the hippies used to use? reflect? It may not reflect, uh, what you're, what you're seeking, but it may, I, I don't have enough experience with like highly trained dogs and this may be why I have my, everyone has their preference. Mine is for the, um, the hunting dog. That's who I most feel in tune with. Though, you know, we're talking about dogs here. They're all going to heaven, except for pit bulls. And um, I don't want to limit your experience, but I just want to provide some type of context. So yeah, this is some bad shit speculation, but um, I know that some of you are out there like, yeah, yeah, obviously. Can you get on with the fucking episode here? Um, you get the point, I think, that the dog, insofar as he is, he too is some type of multidimensional tuning fork creature, mainlining not the secret history of the universe, but more like the universe itself and their nature as constructed by God. In this experience, we are told most completely imbibed or understood, I don't know if it's quite the right word, but um, by humans, right? We have a special position in the cosmos. This relationship with dogs will, or may, we'll, we will retract, will and supplant it with, it may very well, it does for me pretty easily. So, um, you will notice on the back of the dog's skull, similarly found on the back of your own skull, twin muscles connecting to the base of the skull from the neck. There is this, we've spoken about it, I've alluded to it before. Um, there is this huge nexus of stuff happening. This is where your spine connects to the receiver. And the vagal nerve is involved here. And you can massage this area on on your beast and yourself it takes some you know as as james actually suggests in the next segment here not every masseuse is equal and um likewise you know, probably every self-massage is not equal. But in my experience, there it's pretty accessible where you, you, know, you feel it, you're the receiver and the giver. You can find, once you explore this area, this, it's like a little notch. I'm working it as we speak, and I can work this thing hard. Um, pulling forward with my fingers, right side fingers, right side of that musculature and you can get down in there don't you know do any damage but both sides and 
This will relieve headaches. This will chill you the fuck out. And um, personally, it, it works on animals as well. It usually is like instant for if your dog is not a neurotic basket case. Um, and this may be one of the, it's just to suggest, you know, this is one of these ways that you can kind of start to understand. Because on one level, just the material level, like this is kind of, I don't know, I guess you could still argue it, but it's, it's fairly obvious, right? But we, it's all of this meat in between, this gray area between, yeah, you rub this area, the blood comes to the area because you're rubbing it, and then, you know, we go farther down into the granular descriptions, and all of a sudden it's just kind of like, and that's the way it is. very tangled like philosophical intellectual situation that we find ourselves in on many levels all right so with some more practical tips friend and also subscriber recently asked um was looking to to grab some not necessarily like engage in a full yoga practice but what were some Maybe some high, you know, and with a lot of things, it's like this. You can, you can strip it down and take away some essentials. Not to do any major disservice, but uh, I was thinking about this, and then a few things did occur to me. So, for the lower body, the so-called Slav squat um, will work miracles. For the upper body, this is the, the hang, you know, not the pull-up, but as if you were doing a pull-up. I'll provide a few cues that I prefer on all of these as I go back through them. And um, the third one is just gravity twists is what I, how I conceive of them. This is twisting the spine, you know, both directions. Um, so for the squat, you may have to work to even get into it. And you just, that's it. Just got to work and work and work. The more you make this movement, um, you'll get into it. And there, are, once you are even, you know, all the way down, um, no remaining serious tension. There's still reconfiguring to do. So let me get into it and see if I can find a few of these cues. First of all, going down should not be an exercise of, you know, completely frog-legging it out. Uh, it's somewhat frog-legged for sure and once you're down into it feet are entirely flat you can use your elbows on the inside of your knees to create a little, little triangle there of um, 
tension to balance you. As you are sort of, you know, you can just sway back and forth, you can sway forward, you move more weight over to one foot than the other, uh, forward to the toes and then back to the heels. Eventually though, if you feel pretty balanced, you know, I like to then release this, um, this elbow knee hold and start to let all of the weight fall in, not entirely to the heels, it's more like it's all in the arch. The arch of the foot is pronated. This is an interesting spot as well to toy with your breath because it seems to reveal the work of the diaphragm very quickly. Maybe because all of your organs, your guts are compressed already. That thin sheet, circular sheet with a couple of portals, you know, to allow passage of uh, information, blood, what have you, food and guts, or uh, excuse me, not guts, lymph, um, juices in general. It, if you're already somewhat familiar with that construction, you know, it's just the compression down is, is very accessible to your, your, you know, your interoception, your sense of the interior, interiority of your physical body. And the breath rises right up into this Castanadian assemblage point area um, around the shoulders and your back. Once again, yogis still out there talking about breathing into your belly are, don't have any idea what they're talking about. And there's a lot of them. So since we're here, another piece that we never talk about, but because it's uncomfortable and awkward, you have this thing, you'll hear it a lot in the, in the lady circles, your pelvic floor. Dudes have a pelvic floor as well. Um, if you've ever tried to, you know, search the internet for um, semen retention practices, this, this will come up. But this is another position where you can get a strong sense of it because I, again, my theory is that most people don't really have almost any interoception, much less like an ongoing day-to-day -day relationship with these baselines. So it's kind of, pardon me, like um, if you're halfway in your midstream and you're going to cut that piss off, that is not you know, the entirety of it, but that's sort of where it begins. And so you have this bowl on the bottom, you know, of your hips, cupping all these guts up there, and then you have a bowl inverted on the top. All of the air is actually going into, in this position, forward into this deep, super sloth squat, mid-back, upper back, instant. <clears throat> And understanding, you know, the importance of this internal compression, 
between these two bowls <clears throat> is not, it's not so much about your six pack. Um, it's not even so much about the sheath of core muscles that encase both sides and the rear of your torso. It becomes very obvious that you're dealing with these two cup shapes. So that is a good place to, uh, to begin for some cues. With the hang, you need a limb, pull-up bar, rafter, something. And there's really not, I haven't found a whole hell of a lot to it. You can go one hand under, one hand over, switch these out, both under, both over, and you will find some different types of pull with a wider grip, more narrow grip, etc. The benefits for your whole upper body and your spine are obvious and um, strong. I cannot really last that long, maybe a minute. So a few times a day is probably, especially when you're getting started, a minute at a time, you know, is preferable. You will feel, at least I do, um, decompression that is like an elongation in various spots of your spine. If you retract your shoulder blades down, maybe in a little bit wider grip, I have found that this will, and you elongate the neck, you can sort of bring that decompression up into the, I guess that's the thoracic, almost to the cervical spine. Whereas without that retention, as if you were preparing to do a pull-up, Personally, it's mostly in the low lumbar region. All of them are good, all of them are great. You can do little gravity twists from there. However, I don't know fully what the pros and cons are there. I kind of know most of the pros and cons for the twists based off of being seated or grounded. So there is the seated, obviously, you probably know this one, like crossed legs, and um, you're gonna put your left hand on the right, right, and crank. You don't wanna crank. This is where the yoga, the yoga thing is right, is correct, and is actually gonna get you somewhere. Breathing through that transition, and then breathing when you're in the twist. So you don't go the deep as deep as you possibly can right away. Just go to a comfortable sort of discomfort. As you exhale, you will find you can grab a whole lot more distance out of that twist. And yet again, you can do it. You can grab some more. until you will max it out 
definitely work both sides of it. Inhale, exhale, make the twist. You get somewhere, do it again. Be thinking on that interoception level, visualizing what the diaphragm looks like, what's actually happening to your guts, to the positioning of your body. Make the exhale and go deeper. Same thing, thinking about it. Another good one to do the twist is simply on your side. You can bring, so if I'm on my right side, I can bring my left knee up 90 degree, knee, ankle, hip configuration. On the side, pretty much everybody twisting out to the left, opening up your chest, you're gonna be fucked up. You will get absolutely nothing out of any of this shit if you do not do that type of breath through it. If you can bring your, um, your time preference into control and switch over to that interior point of view, you will feel the blood, the guts getting out of the way uh, of the hard pieces of your body. Okay. Some of you will, will recall, this would have been maybe, shit, episodes 12, 13, somewhere in there. I mentioned this guy named Kelly Joe Phelps. And I mentioned that he was more or less from Portland. He was from Sumner, Washington, but he moved to Portland to, to make his play on being a musician. He returned, I think he lived in the area most of his career. I'm not entirely sure. He spent a lot of time on the road doing that kind of mid-tier uh, headlining sometimes like at small venues a, a no shit, you know, touring musician though. I think he made something like almost 10 albums. And I say made because it's over. Nobody knew where Mr. Phelps was for I think about three years, maybe more. It was rumored that he'd gone to Nashville. It was rumored that he had, I think it was confirmed that he had spent some time on a cattle ranch, presumably as a ranch hand, probably playing for his supper. Um, turned out he died in Iowa on, I think the first, second, or third of June. It's not entirely clear what he died of, whether this is, you know, the family doesn't want to let it, let it be known because it's somewhat shameful or if it was just, you know, this is just how the man, I mean, he was a quiet, highly introspective genius um, of a very certain sort that does not come along but once in whatever, 100 years, 
couple hundred years. I'd say without reservation, up until January 1st, he was the greatest living guitar player on the planet. And, and I'm going to miss him. So I, w I would say check him out. There's one album in particular, it was like a double album where like seven great songs didn't make the cut, you know, so they sort of put out two and uh, it was called Sky Like a Broken Clock and then the companion album was Beggar's Oil. Beggar's Oil. <coughs> Pardon me. His last album was kind of a full circle thing because his first album and I believe his second had a lot of gospel and not like black gospel but like interpreted biblical lyrical content um, somewhat based off of the you know the Piedmont era as in terms of a style of guitar carried with it oftentimes for the performer and I guess you could say this of all blues but the story of blues is pretty pretty paused if you will but he he didn't play that kind of like silly version he I mean that's stuff's very some of it's very good but a lot of it is just sort of not terribly thoughtful. A song for, for like Goodnight Irene does not just happen repetitively. Hudie Ledbetter wrote this song. Kelly Jo Phelps covers it on one of those two albums, I believe. On lap slide a style of lap slide playing that he invented he took what's known as dobro which is sort of a country thing and pulled a lot of the structural musical structure of the blues i suppose and then made it jazz in a way that was never like if you've ever listened to early jazz right there's a thing called a head and this is roughly speaking sort of your your well you can use it as either your verse or your chorus but it's sort of the thing you return to after you improvise and um, what mr phelps did was essentially something like that i mean he had a head he would return to it and would do massive improvisation, certainly in his live shows. Um, and I think most of the albums were, were recorded in that fashion. Anyway, I'm getting sidetracked. The real point was that the last album, I believe it's called Brother Sinner, is something like 10 or 12 songs, all 
pretty fucking holy, I have to say. And I would recommend that first album, Lead Me On, and maybe to a lesser extent, the second album, Roll Away the Stone. Um, as a 20, 19 year old, I think I was 19 when I first heard him and saw him play, um, to be earnest in that type of lyrical content, you know, um, actually talking about faith, actually talking about, but also mixing it with sort of like human struggles, um, was something that made me think immediately different about a lot of stuff. So that's all I can really do in the way of, I thought it was odd that I had asked you guys where he was and then he, he showed up at a particularly um, serious, you know, passage moment for myself. And uh, anyway, fare thee well, Mr. Phelps. And uh, for subscribers, those are a couple of no shit albums. Unless you're one of these people that like can only listen to reggae or fucking only listen to trance, dude, or what have you. Probably not your thing. Okay, 48 minutes. I got a couple of things I want to jam through here for you of great concern. The Criminal of Purpose. This is an important one. I'm surprised that it, I didn't sort of get to this earlier. I have not invented much. Riker, Riker, go sit. Sit down. Good boy. I have not invented much. I have never claimed to in invent much. Um you know, particularly in this, in this particular vein that we mine on the regular tactical guerrilla criminal purpose considerations. Though, and, and, you know, this can quickly go into, oh, a lot of silly fucking places. So that's not what's happening. But your dry fire, if you're even doing it, um, will become incredibly tedious and boring very quickly. So I will remove my ass from my seat once again to walk through and describe what I am hoping is a, is a useful addition for you guys. There are several variations that I've used that I'm aware of as opposed to, so drawing from concealment and pointing at some small, preferably something like um, a light switch right across the room. Variations on this may be go from one light switch to another light switch or small item. Maybe you have a target set up in your basement. More power to you. For most people, I think they're aiming at light switches. I have aimed at many a light switch. So,
sorry for the interruption. So you're drawing from concealment, you're aiming at a light switch, maybe you're moving multiple light switches. First thing, you can turn yourself parallel to that target so that it's off to your right side at a 90 degree. Look over your shoulder, find the target, think threat, so, or whatever, you know, whatever your, your word is, and pivot, step, draw this way. This will, this alone will shake everything up drastically. So you turn your head, you're pivoting your entire body and drawing at the same time. Obviously, you're gonna work both sides of this. So, off to my right, draw, off to my left, I look, I acquire the target, pivot. Then over the shoulder to the rear on the right, same thing. I look over my shoulder, I see, in this case, it's not gonna be a simple grinding pivot so much as this is where I think, where we're driving at a useful activity. The footwork and the whole the whole thing is going to foul up your otherwise, you know, static draw a lot. It doesn't have to. I mean, it's it's a very natural thing. And I think it's worthwhile in my opinion. So walking through it, I look over my right shoulder. I can sort of, you know, I guess in the exercise you can imagine something large and dark moving towards you, a shadow, right? I do a pivot such that my right hip is now opened and I'm sort of in a, I don't know, modified lunge position. And as I'm bringing the left foot up and around, the draw is happening such that when I make that final pivot, squaring up to the target, everything's drawn. So left side, same thing, over the shoulder, but in this case, the left foot is spinning towards that target, opening up that left hip. Right foot is either dragging, here's where we get into the, you know, do I wanna lift my weight off the ground or not? I don't personally think that most of us are gonna be that good, but however you get that right foot around, you're now into, you know, your typical staggered stance and timing this all so i see it the draw is happening already the draw is happening really in time with that first we'll call it and you know an opening of the hip sort of pivot and everything's coming around such that as you square up that's where your sights are you know it's all timed so your sights fall on the target. Variations of this, I did not invent this, but I picked it up years ago, um, include already in motion, right? So I am taking two steps as if I'm walking, off to my right is the threat, square, pivot, draw, etc. Same to the left, open up the pivot depending on this footwork right here see my I pivoted to the left 
my right foot is back. I'm fine with that right there. I'm also fine with putting, bringing that foot up. With a rifle, it's in my experience, I want that more lunge-like. It's like a lunge, um, not a squat, but it's like a wide lunge, right? So that back foot is very firmly planted. I can feel the ass cheek engage. And it's just much more athletic in my much better balance. I've always liked wide stance on everything. So the, the pe couple observations on all of this is once again, the age old, you know, general athletic stance just seems to rear its, its brilliant head once more. If you are like a locked leg sort of guy with no bend in your knees, and no sort of, uh, to, to coin a phrase, like um, if you're very, you know, flat-footed and very kind of planted, my experience is that most of it, your motion still, it's not necessarily the hips, you know? People like to have this super lombardosis, like, swooping swan swooping swine swooping spine such that there's like ass cheeks are engaged and you're kind of in a squat like nobody nobody lives their life like this and if there are i can tell you from my you know mobility sort of longevity point of view that whole fascia chain that runs from your heel all the way up to this little other assemblage point um where spine meets the skull and it is, it runs all the way up, it's connected all the way through. If that thing is all, you know, ossified and calcified and fucked up, and there's no limber, uh, what am I looking for? Fluidity. Then this, all of this from, you know, looking off to the left to just pivot is gonna be fucked up because you will have inflexibility uh, and tension in both the knees and the ankles. However, this is not to say, you know, that you need to be in a giant squat. What I have found is that if all of that posterior chain is supple, let's say, maybe that's the word we're looking for, the movement can actually begin in your feet. It may not begin technically there, like maybe it is the hip that's, it's hard to say, but it's very fast. It's like Michael Jackson, bam, moving. And um, it doesn't have to be very fast, but when you feel the speed, you can then slow that down and you'll feel you are working that whole posterior chain as well as, you know, muscles in the front, quads, what have you. And uh, there you go. That is my submission to you, dear listener, in this week's Criminal of Purpose segment. We are... Since I was eh, pushing an hour, so that's gonna that's gonna get us nicely segued or set up, excuse me, for Mr. Lafond. In this particular piece of audio, James and I have just fought all day. Um, we boxed. We fought with sticks. We fought with knives. I personally did not fight with machetes. 
and I personally did not go to the ground, though many participants took rounds in all of them. Grappling, um, there was even, I think it's called a jambok, a sort of finale, uh, jambok and stick duel, maybe the first of its kind, and it was absolutely brutal. Both participants, I'm sure now, two weeks later, are still walking around with hellacious wounds, welts like 16 inches long. And so we, essentially, we, we've, we've gotten through Fight Club, um, minor injuries, I think a broken finger, some heat exhaustion, definitely some hurt feelings, um, and some, some very beautiful and meaningful moments of self-evaluation. I observed um, in myself as, as well as in others. And some just, you know, good old-fashioned ass whoopings took place. James was very generous with his wisdom and uh, instruction. I, w I was lucky, uh, gifted with numerous, like, micro lessons you know, throughout the experience, whether that was stick and knife or how to put a fencing helmet on or boxing or what have you. And I think that as an event, it was a major success. And um, my takeaway in terms of Fight Club in general would be, would be do it, you know. Um, you may not get what you want, but I think you're going to, as the stones say, you're going to get what you need. And not, not many things in this life, you know, are like that. Uh, maybe everything in life is like that. I don't want to be too terribly philosophical about it because that's kind of the point. You know, you're reducing things down to being hit in the fucking face. And um, this has an... And undeniable, like don't even, no one needs to argue it. Um, if you have not been hit in the face, you need to go do it. And if you have, and you have, it's been a little while, you probably need to go do it. Um, in this audio, we get into, again, uh, like James is a, a fountain, you know, of myriad knowledge and opinion and experience. So we cover all types of ground and uh, we do a particular piece on Mr. LaFont's fiction. And we isolate several, several works that you might want to check out. Again, his, his website will be linked um, most of you guys probably are aware of Mr. LaFont at this point. If you're not, do yourself a favor, check him out. There's, there's video, there's many interviews. I think we're up to a hundred books in the LaFondian Ovoir. Is that how you say that? Uh, in the, in the, the LaFond canon. Um, so without further ado, 
check it out and uh, I will cut cut the audio at some point to divide between subscribers and non-subscribers so if you're not a subscriber go to patreon follow the links in the bio or go to the website find your way over there drop a few measly bucks and gain access for those of you who are already subscribers I really appreciate it and I'll be we'll be right back with the LaFond audio and then most likely some music and uh, we'll pick up this you know this monologue stuff where we left off adios Part two. Um, how did you think it went today? How do you feel? Nobody went to the hospital, so uh, that was my main concern. So we avoided that. Uh, and I feel okay. Uh, um, I kind of overdid it, but. Uh, I make sure I drank enough water, so I'm okay. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah. So how about you? How, how did you like it? I I definitely was um, due for for being punched in the face. Oh, cool. Yeah, it had been it had been too long, and I picked up. You know, I feel like I picked up a lot. Um, I know enough to pick up. Uh, discrete pieces that I will remember but also an exposure to some stuff that I hadn't seen before um, machetes what do they call it? Jambok? oh the Shambok, Shambok. Uh, yeah it used to be made out of rhino hide for whipping African cattle and African sh shattle uh, later on um, and uh, the guy I drove down with got six of them on clearance and they're made out of polypropylene which is like this indestructible plastic and all that stuff hurts like hell because it's flexible and it doesn't break brutal yeah so uh, yeah that was nasty I'd never done that before we plan on doing it again next year uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> it just turned into uh, a battle of attrition and I lost <laughs> Only by a hair, though. It, it was literally neck and neck, right until the. Man, that was brutal. That that last one was rough. I I winced. I think everybody in the gym winced. Oh, it was truly <laughs> hard to watch. Man. So yes, yeah, so I got I, I broke a finger and got some bruises and that's it. And um, our. Our man Cody uh, sprained his instep uh, early on, but he he put in some of his best fights later when he switched to shoes because we were wearing we were all going bare feet. 
uh, yeah, so we adjusted, you know, that he wasn't going to be able to continue if he had to go barefoot. So I said, well, you know, we'll just clean the mat again when you're done. Wipe off your shoes. And it worked out good. He did, uh, he did really excellent in his stick fight. And uh, uh, I was proud of him. So that was, uh, he's a guy that went from badminton to stick fighting. He still does badminton. Uh, but people that in lacrosse and hockey were naturally very good early on at stick fighting. I never thought of somebody from a racket sport, but it makes sense. They actually have even better wrists. And, uh, you know, it's like, uh, uh, it's like fighting Peter Pan if he was a criminal. You know, so it's just, it's pretty cool. He's very nimble. Yeah. <laughs> very quick. And, and he's the littlest guy here. He's, yeah. He's the only guy uh, under 165 pounds that was here today. He put up a good show. Yeah. I mean, a really good showing. And our host, who I don't know if he wants to, you know. Oh, he don't care. Sean. Sean. <laughs> yeah. Um, what to say? I mean, just an absolute, the, one of the last people that you want to find yourself in an alleyway with, I, I would think. Um, uh, uh, I'm really proud of Sean. He, uh, he found me. He was looking for information on the Baltimore riots and he found me and he was a fighter and he wanted to improve his boxing. So he contacted me and he said, yeah, I, I, I'm a Christian and I realized that you're not. And he addressed the email to me as uh, to the dirty heathen, James LaFont. <laughs> and I thought it was really cool when he said, uh, you know, do you have any problem with training me what would it cost and I emailed him back uh, oh slave of the hanged god <laughs> so, so, so uh, I said it's not going to cost anything I, uh, it, you just have to show up I, I can't afford to travel I didn't drive and if you can come down to Baltimore so he would uh Every month, he would drive uh, to uh, Baltimore from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and uh, he would spar with uh, uh, numerous guys that I worked with down there, and he eventually started his own gym in Lancaster. He had his own MMA team, uh, and he, he essentially inherited all my equipment and everything when I became homeless. and. Uh, now he's down here in Tennessee homesteading and he's just a high functioning alpha male so it, you know it gives a, it gives a, a, a little worn out omega male like me you know some feeling that I've uh, that I have a purpose you know <laughs> that I can I can be his uh, his dastardly little advisor so he's uh, uh, he, he thanked me for uh, for coming down so and the guy that brought me down Sean just called him up and said, you are bringing James down on this date. And he said, yes, sir. Okay. And he's older than Sean by like 10 years. He drove down to Baltimore every month to train with me from New York City for about 20 years. Uh, and so, and, and he came down here. Also so, a very capable guy, I thought. And he, uh, he's the first guy standing outside of the gym that Sean saw when he showed up in 2016. 
He said, when I saw the guy with the neck tattoos outside the gym, I just almost turned around and left and went back to Pennsylvania. So <laughs> because I can't bring a gun into Maryland. <laughs> yeah, if we're talking about the same guy, he's got a very, uh, very intimidating presence. <laughs> a certain look about him. So, so yeah, this is great. I, uh, the people that were here today, uh, some of them were Sean's people. Some of them were people that I've met. The, the young guy, uh, Cody, the badminton player, uh, he contacted me after he heard me on the Mess of the 20th Century podcast no kidding. and asked me if I would train him and his friends to fight because they were upper middle class kids that went to college and of course you know uh, you're not you don't have that responsibility to defend yourself in middle american culture and uh, of course he's very intelligent and he knows that that's no longer the case that <laughs> you know that uh, you, you either defend yourself or become victimized so yeah it's uh, i feel very fortunate so if i've got a uh, uh if i've got an idea that I've been blessed. This is a big part of it because uh, all of these guys that you met today, they all sought me out uh, and asked me to do something with them. And in a lot of cases, it put me on a better path. Corey, he's another guy who you've known. Uh, Corey is now, a lot of these guys are in their mid 30s, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, I hit Corey with a stick really hard when he was 14 years old. He was a student at an Archbishop Curley uh, Catholic High School in Baltimore. And uh, Dr. David Lumsden, who was uh, a Jeet Kune Do instructor, him and his brother Kevin started uh, a mixed martial arts program that, and they wanted to include weaponry. And they didn't have a dedicated hands coach for boxing. So he found out about me. He contacted me. He brought me out. We beat each other up. And he decided I was uh, a, a worthwhile article for his purposes. And then as he taught, and I told him, I said, I'm not an instructor. I just learned how to fight with sticks by fighting with sticks. And, but, and he was an instructor in a few different styles. He said, I understand what you are. Uh, he said, but you can fight. So he said, we're using the Spanish system. They're not using a Spanish system, but what he meant in the Spanish system of defense, you had an instructor. I guess they call him a maestro. And then once you were taught the techniques, he sent you to a duelist that was not responsible for teaching your techniques. He was responsible for teaching you how to adapt the techniques that he taught you. So I've had this relationship with numerous Filipino martial arts and uh, Eskrima instructors where I do not instruct. I am the sparring and competition coach. I'm just a trainer. I don't, I don't teach them the basic system. Um, and uh, David, Corey was one of his students. He, he was 300 pounds when he was 14 years old. He was like six and a half feet tall. He's a giant. Really? 
Yeah, it's always been that big. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so he's used to being that big, and uh, we, um, and then eventually, uh, Corey uh, came looking for a job at a supermarket where I was the manager. And he learned to hate me like the rest of the employees. It's really <laughs> funny, and he he was a momentarily a hero at Bell Garden Byright when everybody found out that the reason why the boss had his finger in a splint was because Corey crushed the tip of the boss's finger while they were sparring, <laughs> and it was down at Archbishop Curley because it's an alumni program. They set it up so that anybody that attends or is an alumni of the high school. Can train Colin, with them. He uh, he's up at the house. Oh, I just came from the house with him there. Okay. I'll just find him so I can pay him. I'll just pay him tomorrow. Well, okay. He was right there by the, the trucks, but uh, I okay. assume he went back up the house. Okay. Yeah, so I'm not walking home. <laughs> I'm, getting, I'm laying down. All right, man. Uh, yeah. I'll see you later. I'm going to bed down in the ring. So you got to mat to yourself. Okay. All right. <laughs> yeah. All right. Okay. Good job, man. Thank you. Yeah, everyone did great today. Yeah. So, uh, I I met John a year ago. Uh, he uh, uh, he was one of Cody's guys. I think it, I forget if he's a carpenter or an electrician, but uh, he, he just wanted to be able to defend himself. So he. Uh, that's uh, so it's interesting. So it's uh. uh uh, it, it's been a really interesting journey. So other people that not everybody made it, but generally when you put one event like this together, I've done about 20 of them myself, and I would usually do it to benefit whatever school that I coached out of. Because usually the deal is I had with with David, uh, with Seafood Clark, with, with Jimmy Frederick, these guys who we trained out of their school. We trained for free. Uh on, uh, but I also coached their people for free. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then my guys on off hours could show up there and work with me, and then come in to assist me for like clinics or seminars, and we'd sometimes put together benefits. You know, where we just uh, uh, we uh, would sell tickets to people to come watch us beat each other up and then it would benefit the school and we did it for St. Jude's Children's Hospital a couple of times so um, Corey ended up getting in, uh, involved with that and a bunch of other young fellas did too some of them were going to come down but the one guy got called away on a military deployment mm -hmm. I, I coached him from when he was 5 to 18 and he looked me up again uh, when he got out of boot camp and wanted to start training again. So uh, the uh, turnout is typically 25 to 50% of registered participants. When you're putting together any event where people are actually going to get hit with something that's moving really fast, whether it's a fist or a stick. He had 22 people originally that said that they were going to make it. 14 of us showed up. Hmm. So that's the best results I've seen yet. So, so that's good. That's, uh, yeah. The the biggest event we had in the 20 years I did it in the Baltimore area was 14 guys. That was like the high water mark. Uh, that was a benefit for St. Jude's Children's Hospital. Uh, you know, so 
I, I didn't think something like that would happen again. So, so this is great. Yeah. yeah. Well, there was good, um, for lack of a better word, good energy. Everybody um, seemed to find their place. Uh, everybody was very happy to be here. You know, you maybe maybe it's due to the the winnowing or the private nature of the invitation, or um, it was unlike other training. You know, it wasn't a training class, but I've been to many training courses. Um, it was both both more intense in many ways and uh, more laid back. Everybody felt, I think, pretty comfortable with everybody else. There wasn't that you know that's not always the case at a training course um, from my experience oh. so it's it's kind of um, is it full circle I think so I, I it it, it kind of had a gravity I I was determined not to box anybody but John uh, because I absolutely knew he would get the better of me and uh, it would have been a travesty if I'd have beat up some young guy, right? <laughs> so, um, and I also, I, I'm just so slow. I don't feel confident boxing anymore. Uh, but after 45 minutes of putting gloves on people, and then I noticed some of them were starting to get tired, I just put a pair of gloves on myself. <laughs> and I was like, okay, i got to get involved in this. This is too cool. I might never be able to do this again. And, uh, <laughs> So, and the guy stepping in the ring and actually ended up being Sean. Yeah. I was like, oh. <laughs> so, you know, I, I knew he wasn't going to kill me. After he started beating me up, I just decided my goal was to hit him with foul blows. Yes. So, so, I, so I managed to hit him with some foul blows that would have got me disqualified and uh, relieved me of the humiliation of the loss if it was a sanctioned bout. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so I played the heel. Uh, it, it was fun. That was, uh, so that's my goal when I'm boxing with uh, young guys who are trying to learn it. Is I'm playing the heel like you would have in pro wrestling, the bad guy, and I'm trying to do some role playing and not always just doing what I want to do. Right. Yeah. Uh, um, so, so I have different jobs uh, to do and. Uh, you know, and in some cases, Sean and I discussed what needed to happen. What, because he started out just boxing the five guys that hadn't boxed before. And that's how we decided to do it for a developmental thing. And that, that's the safety cue. And uh, that's what you do in boxing gyms. They don't do it in MMA gyms as much. And a lot of people get injured in MMA gyms. And traditional martial arts, nobody spars at a low level. And then only a select few people spar at a higher level. That's usually the way it goes. And then they have to pull in somebody like me to help them learn how to actually fight because they've been retarded. And MMA gyms, they tend to spar people with other people at their level. And that's how people get hurt. Uh, because ideally, you want a guy that uh, can protect himself and protect the guy that he's training because this guy's an unknown quality. He might actually be able to hit very hard. He might be dangerous. And he probably also has no idea how to defend himself. And both people are liable to get hurt. Yeah. So you take your best guy 
and your newest person, you put them in there with him, and then he's in charge of making sure he doesn't hurt them. And it's it's hard to get this point across, and MMA has made it worse just because of the type of conduct that they use in these gyms because they make a lot of money uh, by selling tickets of fights where they book their fighters. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's more money to be made at the local level and the state level in amateur boxing where the fighters don't get paid than in professional boxing because you get somebody with a good personality that has friends and they sell tickets to all their friends. Mm, I see. Yeah, so this is, uh, it's an abusive thing that's built in to uh, prize fighting arts, just like uh, black belt mills are an an abusive thing that's built into like the traditional Asian base karate, you know, because when you worship money, it basically all comes to that altar, right? You know, where where, where you you gotta pay mammon. So, um, uh, good boxing gyms avoid that, but they're always very small. It's a very few number of people, and I don't know if there's anybody. A few of the guys here boxed at the Lock Raven boxing team, but none of the guys that I met there made it here today. Hmm. You know, the one guy is collecting his grandmother's rent money in Jamaica right now. Every Jimmy goes down to Jamaica. He, he's the guy that records the Hobo History podcast uh, okay. that goes by the name Incognigro. His, he's the black guy on the one poster. Uh, oh, uh, really? Okay. In there. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So uh, he really wanted to come, but uh, he asked to collect grandma's rent money from her slacker tenants uh, you know, down in Jamaica. I so see. He does that in June. Well, um, uh, earlier in the year, uh, we were talking about this book of yours that's now called The Violence Project. And it's, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's a compilation of actually two titles that were with Paladin Press originally. And that relationship went went somewhere sideways and then they went on to Amazon under your right you had the rights yes and then Amazon banned it yes and then Lynn repackaged it yeah. in brilliant uh, <laughs> by, by actually emblazing on the front uh, banned on Amazon but now you can buy it on Amazon and selling it on Amazon yeah, yeah. that was great that was pretty awesome uh, the Power and Press went out of business uh so the, the rights to these okay. books that they hadn't been reprinting anyhow uh, finally came back to me. Okay. And these books had been the logic of steel as some Japanese guy sold the last 10 new copies for $250 a piece right, in 2011. <coughs> um, you know, I, I hardly made any money out of, off of these when it came out because the reason why Power and Press went out of business is because Amazon took over the wholesale retail market and a book that should have been $24 was now being sold for 16 and all of the cut came out of the printer and the author. Yeah. So I got 53 cents a copy for the 700 copies of The Logic of Steel that sold and the same thing with uh, The Fighting Edge uh, which only sold a few hundred copies and then 
people were literally selling them used for a couple hundred dollars a piece. I, I thought it was I thought it was really cool actually, because it just uh, it, it reaffirmed my prejudice that. Uh, uh, I shouldn't be an economic critter that I should just be doing <laughs> something else <laughs> because that, uh, so that uh, and the only to date the book that I've sold the most of was a game called Pizza Wars that I sold 1700 copies of in 1988 it was just a little two little booklets on how to play war games with a pizza while you eat it and it sold 1,700 copies, but I actually lost money on it. I lost $500 on it because you, back then you had to do a print run. If you didn't sell 5,000 copies, you lost money. Right. Okay, so uh, so all, all my best-selling things, have never, uh, I've never seen any money off of them. And then when these got banned by Amazon, uh, they weren't banned because of the content. They were banned because I was running Plantation America books. I see. And I actually tracked it. I wasn't just paranoid. I am paranoid, but I wasn't just paranoid that there was uh, a uh, there was a stream. I was doing timely Q and A articles, and people were asking me to write more Plantation America books. And I'm writing articles saying how I don't make any money off of this stuff because it doesn't sell. The only thing I make money off of is the violent stuff, and then. When does a Twitter poll, what do people want to hear James talk about on the podcast? It's the logic of steel because it's still an out of print collector's item. And two days later, the logic of steel and the fighting edge are banned on the back end on Amazon. My niece told me because she, at the time she was running the site for me. And at that time, since they had come back in my domain and they were selling used for hundreds of dollars, I put 50 bucks on them. So I was making $20 a copy off of them. At the time, that was 25% of my income, which was only $2,400 a year. So my income went from 24 down to like 15, 16, something like that. This is June 2018. This is basically when I became homeless. <laughs> I see. Okay. okay. <clears throat> and, then, uh, and then two of my other books had been banned too, but they had been banned for the content within those books and the one book had been banned on the back end barbarism versus civilization which i serialized most of the book online most of my readers hated it that thing well my niece uploaded it on the back end just so it was there so she could quit publish anytime she wanted to uh, or not publish it and just generate a draft copy for me mm -hmm. that thing got banned as soon as it went up on the back end is a draft not to be published that got locked. I couldn't do anything with that. So it, that was because of that content. So that's when Lynn started publishing on another platform. She put that book out on another platform. And, uh, you know, another a Harm City book had been banned earlier. Um, uh, for another reason, for some magical reason, I don't, I don't know why. It was a really weird week on uh, January 6th of uh, 2021. Uh, I got a text from a girlfriend back in Baltimore. Mm -hmm. She said, where are you? And I texted Washington. And then she called me. And I picked up the phone. I said, hey, baby, what's up? She said, please tell me you're not the asshole with his feet on Man Nancy Pelosi's desk. 
or the guy in the horn helmet. I was like, what? What are you, what are you talking about? You know. Uh, so she told me there was some kind of thing going on in Washington D.C., some political thing. Uh, <clears throat> that was on January sixth. On January seventh. I decided, well, I guess everything, you know, uh, I'm going to be even in more trouble now. Let me see if I can just publish a whole bunch of drafts on the back end to get a print copy. Uh, so I got on that back end of the Amazon site, and those four banned books have been taken out of Amazon Prison on January 7th, 2021. But, so then, Lynn and I put them back out, but then we found out that you can't search them, that they're like shatter banned. Okay. Okay, so if you search them, you're going to find the used copy. So, uh, so I'm glad that this copy is out there. And besides, she titled it, I sent her my violence project index, which was on graph paper, where I put the results of the 1,725. Uh, I think that was a number. I might be wrong on that. It, it was four years from June to May, 96 to 2000. Maybe it was 1,675, maybe it was 1,725, I don't know. Acts of violence that I documented, and I have a checklist, and I use color coding with crayons uh, for quick color code, you know, red for edge weapons, blue for guns, you know, yeah. and, and so on. So she, I mailed that to her when she was putting this book together. Okay. Uh, so, so anyhow, so it's now, and the corrections that I could never get Powell and Press to make when they did... A, re, a new print run because it wasn't a new edition. They couldn't put the corrections in. There were some mistakes in there. So Lynn made the corrections and there was a couple of editions in it also. Uh, I'm glad you like it. Hopefully it was useful. It was intended to be used. So. It's very useful and, and it goes well, I think, as the two volumes. I mean, not that that was you know the original intention, but maybe it just worked out in your favor. Um, so for the listeners, um, the first volume is not necessarily a survival guide. I think you even say that at one point in the book. It's um, how would you describe that first first volume? Uh, the first book I wrote um, as a as a as a way to communicate to uh, somebody that read books by Powell and Press or Desert Publications, an outfit like that, that didn't have the money to, to pay for really high quality uh, self-defense instruction, how you could learn how to fight. The working title was Utilizing the Martial Arts. They took a line from something I wrote in the book. They knew the book wasn't going to sell good, but they liked my writing style and they basically published mostly first-time books by non-writers and they're literature people so i'm actually trying to be a writer so they were thrilled to have me uh so they uh they titled it the fighting edge and that was from a quote in the book and then they took my title and they demoted it to the subtitle which has happened a lot in publishing in the past hmm. And I apologized to John Ford, the editor. I said, I'm sorry, I didn't come up with a better title. He said, the title was far too important to leave up to an author. It's not your job. <laughs> and, awesome. and he even told me, he said, and I asked him why. I said, well, why'd you buy the book? He said, because you're the best author in the field. 
anyway, it was the second book I'd ever written, but it was the only the first one that I sold. And I thanked them. He said, well, don't let it go to your head. You're the only writer in the field. <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing he told me was for the ancient boxing history book, which they never ended up publishing, although they gave me an advance for it, which I had to pay back. He just said, no dicks on the cover. All right. Yeah, he was a great guy. I, I, I really want. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't let you know he was the boss and it just made it so much easier. Yeah. You don't want a mealy mouth editor. Right. You, know, you just want to have an editor that's going to say, okay, this, this way it's going to be, these are your parameters. Yeah. I was going to ask how you liked working with them. I'm, I, don't, I mean, you don't have to get into it. Uh, Donna DeVal was my project manager, and she was an absolute doll. She was a southern girl, I think from Arkansas, who had a master's in history. And she really liked doing uh, my books. So she did The Fighting Edge. She did The Logic of Steel. And she did The Logic of Force. Uh, so the three books that grew at, at the very end of writing The Fighting Edge, I started to take a violence survey, which became The Violence Project. Right. And my idea, when I saw what was happening, I said, okay, I need to do three books. Because all I did was, okay, this is how you could learn how to fight uh, without getting ripped off or hurt. That's all I had done was the fighting edge. Uh, but I could see with my survey how where this was going that more and more violence involved mass attacks of groups upon individuals and weapons. So I decided to do uh, the knife book because I knew that would sell because the knife books was the biggest selling category in my area in that segment of the publishing world. Mm -hmm. uh, so I did The Logic of Steel, which is a play on uh, James Keating had his ridding, riddle of steel uh, knife thing yeah. get together. And knife people hated it. All the knife instructor people hated it. The, all the knife aficionados hated it. It did get reviewed good by uh, the, the Journal of the Oriental Martial Arts. They gave it a good review. Uh, and the other three books were The Logic of Force, which is just about blunt weapon attacks. Because when I looked at it, 13% was edge weapon attacks. 10% was firearms, and this is in Baltimore, where there's more shootings per capita than any other mid or large-sized city. 30%, yeah. 33% uh, 30 are weapon attacks overall. So when you take out, uh, when you take out the 10% of guns, and then the, I think it was 11% edge weapons, the biggest category of weapons was an assortment of blunt weapons. Yeah. That's why I got into fighting with sticks. Okay. to see how this stuff worked. Uh, and then the the really ominous thing that increased with every decade, because there are things in the violence project that were interviews of old men about violence they experienced in the 1950s. But what you, what you could say when you went from the 1950s to the early 2000s is every decade the incidence of group attacks on individuals would increase. And then it was doubling and tripling. Uh, so the uh, f uh, the fourth book of of the four, and it became the first Harm City book of which I wrote like fifty or sixty, uh, was When Your Food, which is just about surviving 
stories of people who survived mass attacks mm -hmm. and how I've dealt with these things. And because I became very good at avoiding mass attacks from developing on me by making sure very subtly that the most intelligent person in this group or the one with the best instincts knew that I was armed and I was going to stab somebody or shoot somebody. But you couldn't broadcast it. So I would, uh, my strategy became dependent upon good instincts and high intelligence of my enemies. Otherwise, it's a disaster. If I have to stab a couple of guys, I'm done. My wife's server. Um, so, the uh, uh, so when your food is my best-selling uh, self-published book. Okay. Uh, so I and, and that basically that that became the platform for the you know, the whole Harm City genre that I did, which is just urban blight journalism. And advice on, you know, how not to get screwed by criminals and cops. No, that, that's all. So that, that's how it developed. But The Fighting Edge was going to be my only book like this. I was doing it to practice writing because I wanted to uh, write other things. You know, so, uh, but it pointed the way towards, uh, it was like, okay, <laughs> you know, that, this uh, this ability to like use boxing to defend yourself against somebody that's sucker punching you, this is quickly becoming obsolete because now you're talking about like six guys that are going to stomp you to death. <laughs> so, so I felt an obligation and, and a, a curiosity. And I stopped the violence project because I was going insane. Uh, I, I became the unpaid psychologist to a lot of really messed up people. Yeah, I could see okay. that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I was just constantly interviewing people yeah. about their violent experiences. You know, uh, so I, I, was, I was having really bad mental problems due to that myself. So that's why I stopped doing the survey. Uh, and I stopped doing that type of writing also. I, I, did, uh, I did a three-volume book on the history of ancient boxing. Uh, you know, uh, between when I stopped the violence project in 2000 and when I started writing in other fields in 2010. So all I did for 10 years was this history of ancient boxing. Hmm. And for those years, I had a real job where I was under a lot of stress and I didn't sleep and I had five girlfriends. Yeah, uh, it, it was a ridiculous lifestyle, and I, I was coaching at three gyms. You and know. you still managed to crank out uh, a, a three-volume set. I wrote one book in ten years. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, uh, that, you know, but that was, I, I had done all the work. I just had to write it. It took me ten years to basically turn my research into those three books, and they didn't finally get completed until I quit that management job on July 5th, 2010. And I spent the next two months writing those three books. I had already been plotting along doing it. I just overwrote the whole thing and, uh, and, and did that because initially it was one book. So I looked at it and said, oh no, I'm going to have to publish this stuff myself. This can't be one book. This has got to be three books. So, um, uh, so I actually might have spent another 10 years 
not completing it if I had continued working like in a high stress yeah. and high uh, time requirement job. Yeah, would have been a shame. And the original violence books, those four books that I wrote, uh, uh, that I just discussed, I wrote them mostly when I was injured, when I was off work for back injuries. And, uh, you know, so that was, that was just a window of time where I was hurt a lot. That's when I lost my house, both cars, two girlfriends, the dog, the wife, this whole country music song, okay? Uh, because my income went from $1,000 a week down to $200 a week when I got injured. And uh, everything started to go away. But so I, I actually, I, I didn't really become a productive writer uh, uh, outside of being uh, unemployed or hurt so bad I can't go to work. Right. Yeah, you know, that's not, yeah. I, I started in 2010, I got a part-time job working three nights a week. I do one six-hour shift and two eight-hour shifts. Monday night, Wednesday night, and Friday night. And I was still, uh, I, I, would, uh, I would just take a nap before I went to work. I'd go to work, and then I'd stay up, and I'd write for 14 hours. And then I'd get up the next day, and I'd write for 14 hours, and I'd take a nap, and I'd go to work. And then on the weekend, all I did was write, because now I was renting a room, didn't have a lot of responsibilities. So being uh, a low-income guy working a part-time job, I really think was probably my most productive period as a writer because uh, it worked really good. I got a ton of material. Guys would try to rob me on my way to work. I thought, okay, well, that's, okay, that's tomorrow's article. <laughs> yeah, you know, so <clears throat> that, uh, I guess that was kind of ideal from, you know, the mix of like all these experiences yeah. in the area that you're writing on. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, having plenty of time because I'm only working what 22 hours a week. Yeah, but there's still that that little draw that's pulling you into a, a regular sort of routine. Right. So yeah. it's, uh, you know, uh, well, it, it was a journey. I'm not doing it anymore. Yeah. But, um. So, um, the, was the reason that all of the knife journals panned the book? because they did not like your conclusions about, uh, I don't know, you know, the Pical method, some people call it the, the ice pick method. Um, as oh. I recall, it was kind of your conclusion, right? Just basically stab the living shit out of them uh, in, in the reverse ice pick. Well, the, the thing that, there's whole different knife styles and doctrines and everything. Yeah. Okay, so the the first I did sell seven articles on this to Black Belt Magazine. Mm. Okay, so they, they were interested in it. Uh, it was the instructors themselves that didn't like it. Okay, uh, Black Belt thought it was a very cool idea, and they they promoted it for an unknown writer. Getting an article once a year in Black Belt was a big deal. Uh, the Journal of Asian Martial Arts liked it. Uh, it was the actual people on the ground that would have been able to use it as source material for their self-defense doctrine, they didn't like it. The people that hated it and panned it were other guys that wrote books on that subject okay. that didn't have my writing skill and had not done my research and just wrote their books based on their experiences. Okay, uh, Mark Young was one. Uh, and 
the and we were paladin authors and uh you know so it was just like a jealousy thing the people that really hated it were the knife porn people the people that just loved knives and they liked the expensive knives so what i find out is expensive knives don't kill people right they're like things that like middle class guys wave around at people to threaten them okay so i'm pointing out you know i'm denigrating this class of people that are collecting these knives uh and most people are being killed with junk it's just garbage that people are being killed with and uh more people were killed with pencils and pens than with swords the um uh, uh, so the one article I read in a knife magazine, which is not a fighting magazine, but just about the product of knives, concluded that, well, uh, Lafon doesn't understand statistics, you know, so it, his statistics are all skewed. I was, and I don't. I mean, my nine-year-old son had to do the statistics for me. I never finished a single math quiz in my life. Uh, I, a math teacher told me how to get a percentage, and I wrote it down, and I gave it to my nine-year-old son, and he did it because I didn't trust myself. But I, I'm confident that if 10 people pick up a knife and one of them picks it up in an ice pick grip, that that's 10% of the actors. Yeah. And that's how many people pick up the knife. It's actually 9% in the ice pick grip. And these people never use it the way it's shown in any martial art, ever. Okay, these are like unhinged people where they're just trying to stab the shit out of you, you know, weird angles and everything. And the other thing that knife instructors didn't like is, you know, you did some knife fighting today. Yeah. And when you're doing that, knife to knife, it's dueling. And that's that's a format that can keep people interested. And we've, we've used it a lot because you learn a lot of things from it. But that's not how knives are used. I only the reason why I started doing knife fighting is because out of two hundred and seventy four incidences of aggression with the blade, I think I found exactly ten that involved two people with blades. And in most cases the guy with the smaller blade went home and just left. Okay, so I was like, Wow, I wonder what actually happens when two people go at it with a knife. So my buddy and I, Chuck, just got rubber knives and started stabbing each other you know (laughs) so uh so the the two things that you find out uh one that it's there's never knife to knife uh two that the ice pick grip is never used as shown by martial arts instructors of people who show how to use a knife or how to defeat it so what the japanese and koreans show you that people use a knife in the overhand ice pick grip that's never happened nobody has ever done that as far as i can determine that is a demonstration that's set up so that they can successfully defend against a weapon they don't understand. The Filipinos do a lot of, uh, there's whole styles, the Sayak fighting system, the, the, the basis for the choreography in the movie, The Hunted. Yes. That's all ice pick grip, and it's a very sophisticated form. Well, uh, it looks cool to me. I practice fighting that way. I'd rather hold it differently, uh, but the people that actually attack you with knives held in the ice pick grip do not do it like Filipino-based martial arts instructors uh, would teach it. And the other thing is that I found out that there was never a case 
that a person who held a knife between themselves and their target uh, or the antagonist there was never a case where they were trying to harm them with a knife they were usually using it defensively they were getting beat up or get threatened by somebody else they pulled out a knife and they held it so if somebody holds a knife between them and you and they point at you, you can just walk away I wouldn't turn my back on them I'd look over my shoulder and walk obliquely but so I essentially debunk all of the knife material that's out there that's, that everybody bases their training on they don't want to have to change all of that uh, so it really wasn't the, uh, the knife publications that the martial arts publications, but it was just uh, the people that dealt with knives. And the funny thing was, Lynn Thompson, the guy that actually invented that thing that Sean and I whipped each other with today, the Shambok. Yeah. He got a free copy of The Logic of Steel. This is the Cold Steel guy, right? Yeah. Yeah. And <clears throat> then he wrote an article based on it. He got paid $250 from Paladin Press for the article. And his article was a ripoff of one of my chapters. Hmm. In the book and the bad guy in the book was even dressed up like me he was uh, a an unkept white guy in a flannel shirt okay he didn't even send me a free practice knife okay the balls on that guy. <laughs> yeah so well good for him I mean he's a millionaire and I'm not <laughs> but the uh, uh, so it, it didn't fit anybody's mythology the mythology of the better tool that goes with a knife aficionado, the mythology of the better system, okay, that goes with a fighting arts. It, and then the bogus, the charlatan business of teaching people to defend against attacks that never happened mm -hmm. with that weapon, uh, it, it doesn't fit with any of that. So there was no place for it, which made me kind of happy. I realized I had actually done something that was significant because yes. the the other people in the area were just all uh, were all negative about it, and they had they had all ill served the people that they that they were supposedly serving. So, right. so I, I felt good about that. I've, I've hardly made any money off this book, but uh, it's uh, I'm really cool that it's back out now. I I. I think I made uh, $15 off the copy that you bought here, so thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> so, so, so that's great. Yeah. Well, for um, War Horse Podcast listeners, <laughs> it's called The Violence Project. You, even though it, it was once banned on Amazon, you can now get it. I think how I found it, um, you know how you can click on the author's name? Uh, it'll, like... It'll be James LaFawn. It'll be up at the top of the, the Amazon title page. You click on the author's name, and it will take them to some sort of index or list, uh, not always complete, of all that that author's works. I'm pretty sure that's how I found it, because I was oh. searching for it, and I found that copy for 500 bucks or something, you oh, know, probably wow. from the Japanese guy. And I'm like, well, James, I want to read this book, but I can't. Seats, but I don't have five hundred dollars for it right now, and then I just kept digging, and somehow I did find it. So, oh, cool. Yeah, maybe. Well, what we've uh, I've made I actually made a decent amount of money off of it as an ebook on the website. Oh, it's available on the uh, website too. Uh, yeah, you know, so we overpriced it. I put twenty five dollars on it. Uh, uh, 
and I, I think we sold like 25 of them so that's better than selling uh, a couple hundred for 53 cents right so. right yeah <laughs> we'll ask somebody who's good at math but i'm pretty sure that works well, out yeah well i assume it's the case anyhow in, in any case it feels better <laughs> yeah so i didn't know that you could um find ebooks on your website uh the, actually a guy i used to coach built that website for me okay uh over now an 11 year period and uh, he set up an ebook store, and uh, there's, I think, 50 titles in it. He puts up a couple of them a year, mm -hmm. and for a little while he put up a whole bunch of them, you know, way back when. And uh, we don't put any more fiction up there because it doesn't sell. He said, "Don't send me any more fiction. Nobody buys it. You know, there's like one person that buys it." So. Uh, I now have Lynn sends him the uh, uh, things that she does. So the last two Plantation America books, uh, uh, Cracker Boy and The Greatest Fly Ever Sold, she sent to him after they've been in print for a while, and then he put them up as an ebook. So after Advent America has been in print for six months, she'll send it to him, and then he'll put up the ebook. Uh, you know, so you know, one or two copies, one or two works a year end up going up on uh, ebook site. He he used to design them himself. Now he just pretty much takes Lynn's format that she makes for the print book and that modifies it a little bit and, and puts it up there. Nice. Yeah. So it, it's so it's, it's yeah it's very nice. It, it it accounts for a third of my income. Basically, Amazon's a third, Patreon's a third, and. Uh, um, the website is a third, and actually, the, one of the guys that was fighting here today is my accountant, and uh, he told me that's normal. That he said people that do what you do for a living they'll tend to have a three-part income stream, and it's usually a patronage platform, PayPal, and Amazon are like the you know the three income streams. Yeah. So. Okay. Well, um, I, I did want to, I don't want to jump off of this book if you don't want to, but I wanted to ask you the question of, like today, uh, you were offering a couple of different guys maintenance tips for their bodies, you know, they're, they're, they're either aging, I mean, oh. one young guy, um, right. had, a, had a thing with his foot, um, but this is like a reality of combat and yes. as well as just aging and you've have you found that I mean you, you obviously I'm sure you have you've had to educate yourself on this just keep going um, what have you picked up any are there any modalities healing modalities or um, you know that you favor or tips tricks that you've found of late um, the what I was going over with them I found out later that uh, actually Sean made fun of that is actually some yoga stretches in there yeah uh, I, I had uh, for five years after I had that bad back injury which gave me time to write those books I, uh, I I went to a massage therapist named Doreen Raquel 
I had been going to a chiropractor. He would adjust my back. I would walk out of his office and I would hear the whole quadratus not up again and the vertebrae move out of position. I was like, okay, so this is a waste of time. So I started going to this massage therapist and uh, she used me as an experiment. She, she accepted actually very little money from me because I was broke. And uh, she ended up becoming the best massage therapist in Maryland and had a bunch of girls working for her at a later date. Uh, she, um, she even did autopsies. She paid for cadaver and cadavers and did autopsies. And she was very serious about her craft. And every time she was chasing, I, I had had a ruptured disc in my back when I was 20. I never did anything for it. I just went back to work. And after a couple years, my foot stopped feeling like it was going to blow up every time I stood up. By the time I was 31, and I was working 118 hours a week, and I was training twice a week, <clears throat> I sneezed while I was brushing my hair. I had long hair. And that disc went into the spinal column. It was... Uh, a central disc rupture yeah. <clears throat> and that was it so I went from six jobs to none um, overnight well it wasn't overnight it I, I like dropped a job a day for a week <laughs> I, I, I sticked with I stuck with the the main job for two weeks and I got to the point I couldn't lift a gallon of milk uh, so uh, I spent seven months initially with her and then the next five years, as I would have reoccurring back sprains, which would put me out of work sometimes for a month or two. And it would keep getting shorter, the back sprains. And I'd go see her on Tuesday, and she would chase these muscle knots all over my body and then hunt them down and rub them out, and it herded like hell. And when she did my pecs, my pecs were so tight from stocking shells and boxing and having this muscular imbalance in my upper body that I felt like the, what the Sioux Warriors would do for their initiation where they put the bones through the chest muscles. She'd get her hand all the way underneath my my pec muscles yeah. and rub the knots out. She would give me an exercise to do to maintain it. And then I would just do it. And then at a certain point, uh, one of the guys I coached said, oh my God, my life has just crumbled. I see James doing cat and dog. You know, it's always just obscene that I was doing some yoga thing or whatever it was. So, yeah, it's just, <clears throat> the, as far as the timing on the stretches, I was telling John about how long to hold the stretch. Uh, I got that from a, a man named Dr. Eastwinick, who used to be the Olympic boxing team coach, who wrote a book on sports medicine for the combat athlete in about 1990. And he actually did a clinic where he had different types of athletes demonstrate their stretching to see what was the best way to lengthen the muscle. And that's how he came up with that formula. <clears throat> uh, 30 seconds, five times. And I had spent my whole life trying to become flexible. And within a few months, I went from barely being able to touch my knees uh, to being able to kiss my shins uh, by doing that. Uh, yeah. So uh, I just found that with, with men that work for a weapon, like that guy was a fireman, uh, and he's a fighter, and he, he trains a few times a week. 
He's having quadratus lumborum spasms, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, which is the most common thing out there, and it can come from a lot of different places because it's a nexus. And uh, guys in their from their late twenties to their mid forties are under a huge amount of stress, making money for their family, and I found that that's the place where they have the most back problems is in that age group, and. I found it to be true. I had horrible back problems for, uh, you could probably add up an entire decade of my life that I spent hardly being able to do anything but just like drag myself to work. I was using a cane to get back and forth to work. I used to have to lay down every 20 minutes uh, because the sciatic pain was so bad when I stocked shelves at night. But that went away uh, when... I stopped doing that kind of work and uh, when I didn't have all that stress mm -hmm. uh, in fact it got better when I I left the stress and I was no longer supporting a family when I was just running that room and working three nights a week it got a lot better then so I, th I think for men in their like peak earning years uh, muscular problems uh, they need to look at stress too yeah I agree and it seems to be, uh, uh, I know a few people that have used yoga and, and they got great results from yeah. it. And I didn't realize that my massage therapist was a yoga practitioner. She just said, do this. And she was cute. So I did it. And that was it. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> and you got, uh, I mean, you were fighting some, some, a, a tough, I mean, several pretty tough rounds today. You were knocked down. I mean, multiple times. <laughs> to say nothing of being whipped with the, the polyethylene uh, torture device. But, and then you popped right back up. <laughs> yeah. The, the worst one was when Corey broke my finger with the, uh, with the steel shield when we were doing adult machetes. Yeah. But I don't even like that finger. That finger sucks. It's been broken before and it's not very important. I don't really need it. It didn't affect me in the fight. <laughs> it's the ring finger. Maybe that's why you put your slavery marker on it. Because <laughs> it's the, the least important finger. You know? So it's just a it's just a simple fracture. So it'll be alright. It's not it I don't think it's a ruptured tendon. I'll find out when the swelling goes down. Well, if the swelling never goes down, then it was ruptured tendon. Like this one. <laughs> Here. <laughs> just uh, there's that lump there on the front of that finger. That was ruptured tendon. So yeah. uh but yeah, I, I uh, one of the safest things for me to do is fight because I did it for so long that uh, I'm relaxed yeah. doing it. And also, for the past 20 years, my main job has been helping other people do it, which means my job is helping them relax. So, it's, uh, so I don't have again, I don't have a lot of tension. So. Uh, I uh, getting tossed uh, didn't end up uh, pulling up any old injuries or anything uh, like that. I, I really wanted to wrestle. I was supposed to wrestle another old guy that's even older than me, but I've got two slight hernias, and these guys are so strong. I'm afraid I would momentarily resist something, and then it would be a disaster. Yeah, and they would have felt bad. I mean, it, it was a real. When it got to the wrestling, it was just like a total. I was out. 
Yeah, yeah, it's just done. bestial, yeah. right? That's just that's like, it. Oh. <laughs> it's, just, <laughs> it's like moving uh, cattle or something. It was it was not pleasant. Right. So that was uh, th that was really impressive. But uh, I I'm assuming I would get uh, the last time I grappled was four years ago, and uh, the guy really had to take it easy on me, uh, and uh, you know so. I wrestled for a couple of years when I was a kid, but I uh, I just never been strong enough or good enough to deal with uh, to uh, to deal with anybody I could grapple at any level. I, I can wrestle bigger guys than me, just because I know a little bit of wrestling and I have a really nasty cross face. Uh, but that's it. Like these guys that uh, <laughs> they can jump on your back and ride you to the ground like you're some farm animal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's what it looked like <laughs> in many cases. <laughs> well, James, I wanted to, uh, as we start to close out, talk about fiction a little bit because um, it doesn't sell. I sell fiction. <laughs> Mine doesn't sell either. I'm with oh. you. But what, if somebody wants to get into your fiction, um, and I know it's impossible to answer, so I won't, I won't phrase it like, you know, What's your, what's your best? But maybe what are the what are the top two or three you know pieces of fiction that you're most proud of right now, or that that you feel like people should pick these things up and check them out? Well, none of none of those are in print yet. But okay. uh, my favorite short story that's been out there for a long while was Buzz Bunny. Buzz Bunny. It's a transmigration of Joey. Uh, Joey Watkins. Okay, it's about a it's about a a boy named Tamar who's being hunted by bullies, and he has the good fortune of running into a telepathic rabbit, who's the transmigrant soul of a drug user that was just whacked by his drug dealer. Okay. Wow! So he he the bunny rabbit educates him. Uh, about the world of bullies in return for one last toke. Uh, so the uh, Buzz Bunny and, and I had well, one lady read it and she said it was almost uplifting. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that that's short. It's out there as a book. Uh, I never got it edited, but it's you know it's just like a a fifty page story. The uh, uh, two books that I got edited that oh. Uh, people that read them said they were really good horror one of them was historical horror the Jericho bone about the famine in Egypt in 1201 I had that edited by a lady uh, that knew what she was doing so that should be pretty clean it's a big book it's an omnibus of people told me it was such a great subject I put it through four different editions to see if any of these titles would sell it started out as a novella called the fruit of the deceiver and then the sequel was 40 Hands of Night. Neither one of those sold, but people kept telling me, yeah, this stuff is really great. So then I put them together, titled it uh, Black and Pale, I, and that didn't sell. Then I did it as an Arabian terror tale. That doesn't sell. So I wrote some additional stuff and put it together, because I still had these like five enthusiastic readers. And I got it edited, and it's titled The Jericho Bone. It's like 500 pages of horror fiction with a science fiction element that's 
most of the stuff that happens in it actually happened because I was working from a journal of a doctor that worked in Egypt during this famine when Cairo became this cannibal holocaust. Um, the, uh, the other one is uh, uh, I, I had a fellow that wanted me to write the autobiography of Conan the Barbarian. I said, I can't do that. This is like a trademark property. So I wrote uh, something called Under an Iron Crown. It's one of the first things that went edited and published, which is a short novel. Uh, I had just got done reading L. Sprague de Camp's uh, biography of Robert E. Howard who was the creator of the Conan character, in which DeCamp, who made his living off of Howard as his posthumous editor and co-writer, mm -hmm. talked about how Howard should have just been a clerk or an accountant. He shouldn't even have tried to write. Okay. Uh, and d used all this pop psychology stuff. So I wrote this when I had pneumonia, when I was living in Big Tony's garage in Portland. And I did it in a few days when I had a high fever. And uh, the... Uh, uh, the conceit was that El Sprague de Camp is dying. He dies. And he goes to the River Styx. And uh, before he has to deal with the boatman, he sees that he's in the back of a cave. And there's this barbarian with this iron crown on his head that's in the back of this cave. And it's like a generic Conan-type character. Uh, I based it really more on some of Howard's minor characters mm -hmm. that were kings. So uh, the conceit is is this, uh, this Iron Age king, one of his slave girls has just told him that the clansmen are going to kill him in the morning. And he's as good as dead. And so he's in this cave to collect his thoughts before he goes out and sells his wife as dearly as he can. And he, uh, he tells his story to DeCamp's ghost, who's already mourning his own miserable passage across the River Styx. So that was, that's titled Under an Iron Crown. I think that's, that's not a, a very long book to ask somebody to read. And uh, uh, I got some, uh, some good feedback on it. I, I think I've done 85 novels. Uh, but uh, uh, that was... Uh, it's not my best, but I think I think it's pretty accessible. And uh, you know, I, I have on the weekend I serialize novels, uh, and then uh, the first two thirds of them go up on my main site, and then I send the last third or quarter of the book to Lynn, and she serializes that on Substack, and then she releases it as a book. Uh, so. Uh, I did one book where I put Sam Fenway in it. Okay. It's called The Filthy Few. <laughs> and when edited it, it's, it's a hardback. And the... Does Sam know this? Well, well, yeah, I told him I was doing it. And okay. actually, there's some stories that he wrote with a character based on me. <laughs> okay. In that book. And um, the, the conceit is is that the last pro-American president of America gets into office and he finds out that the people who rule the world uh, get together and they do these terrible things to children on a ritual basis. He wants to stop this, but he doesn't trust anybody in any of the, the spy agencies to do this. So he uh, 
contacts a military contractor who hunts up Sam as one of his people. And nice. the other guy is uh, uh, Shane, who was a guy I lived with for three months out of the year. He used to be a colonel in the Army Rangers. Okay, so <clears throat> these two guys have to lead a crew of misfits who are just pardoned criminals that are all on death row. The first half of the book is just how these assholes got locked up. So it's essentially that, you know, the, the Dirty Dozen was, I don't know, so many people liked it, but it's like two and a half hours of training and a half hour of action. Yeah. Okay. So the filthy few, the first half of it is how all these assholes got locked up. And they pretty much all deserved it. <laughs> and <clears throat> the second half of it is uh, how they continue to screw up in their attempt to free these children from these perverts. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I apologize here to Sam for having him. I think he was shot in the hip <laughs> in this. I didn't kill him. I, if I used somebody, I, I had seven different readers wrote in when I was serializing this. They said, I want to die in this novel. <laughs> I know what kind of stuff you write. And I know all the characters are going to die, but I, I want a glorious death in this novel, you know? So, uh, so yeah, I, I it ended up becoming a pretty big cast of characters because I had it was just going to be six or seven guys, but I had seven or eight guys right in and say I want to die in this novel. This is great, you know. So uh, <laughs> they do. <laughs> <laughs> but Sam lives, right? Right, yeah, right. Sam lives and uh, and Shane lives because he didn't volunteer to be in the novel. Gotcha. Neither, neither one of them did, you know. So yeah. the, the, they both. Uh, uh, Shane was not pleased with his injuries. He volunteered to lose an eye. He said, I'd like to have my eye gouged out, and I want to kill the guy that does it. But it was worse than all that. So uh, uh, so he, he was a little bit ticked off about that. And, uh. <laughs> the Dirty Few, is that what it's called? The Filthy Few. The Filthy Few. And it's a, uh, it, it, you know, it's it's just a military adventure it uh, sounds good it's a it's a it's a paramilitary adventure and the uh uh some of the um i, I just like writing that kind of stuff uh, it's, it's fun so um so those are just some i guess some things i would suggest i've done novels on request i wrote thunderbird because a guy wrote it and he said what would happen if 200 blackfeet warriors were teleported from like 1850 to like baltimore I was like, well, I can't do that, and I haven't done the research on the Blackfeets, but I think I could turn a Chinook into a time machine and have four insane Lumbee Indians on acid go back to 1675 and pick up 40 Mohawks and drop them into Baltimore. <laughs> so uh, I wrote that in a weekend. Uh, nice. Yeah, it was 35,000 words. I, I, spent, uh, I spent two weeks writing it, and then I accidentally erased the whole thing. So then I stayed up for three days and I, I wrote it. I, I rewrote it for, from memory. What else can you do? It, it's the most violent thing that I ever wrote. It, it's really the, the I, I can't believe Lynn liked it. Uh, I, I was shocked. I was afraid she was going to like throw up trying to get through it. But you know, so it's just about like one night of mayhem where you have forty Mohawks with black powder weapons and four crazy. I don't even know if you know what a Lumbee Indian is. I do. F four Lumbee Indians. They're they're like Puerto Ricans that think they're Indians that live in Lumberton, Fayetteville. North Carolina. Oh, really? Okay. It, with it, right. It, At first, I thought you said Lummy. Like, yeah, Lumbee. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like in Washington. Yeah, so I knew some Lumbee Indians in Baltimore because when they get in trouble in Fayetteville, they go up to Baltimore. And when they get in trouble for stabbing somebody in Baltimore, they go back down to Fayetteville. Uh, so 
so yeah, so that that's one that I did on. I just did on request, and it was fun. It's easier to write something quickly if it's somebody else's idea, yeah. because I don't clutter it up with, uh, you know, with my ideas. Yeah. You know, yeah. So, so so that's it. Well, thanks for being willing to talk about uh, some of the fiction and uh, and some subjects you can only discuss in fiction. Yes. For instance, the the reason why I wrote this. Oh, and who else is in it? The filthy few. The reason why I decided to write it is because I like any no wiki. As a writer, I've read a few of his books. I have too. Okay, yeah. and he's a much better writer than I am, and I don't think he sells any more than I do. And he lost his job and everything because he wrote a book titled Meta Pizzagate. Yep. And it was just a supposition. Okay, I don't know if this is true. I don't care if it is true. What does it mean? What does it say about society? that two million people believe this is true if yeah. you if you decided alex jones listeners believe this is true yes that the super rich people ritually rape children yeah. uh so i i thought that this must be a real thing if that happened to him just because of what he wrote about it yeah so i had no other reason to believe it was a real thing other than my boundless cynicism but the uh Andy ended up delivering pizzas, ironically. Okay, uh, the, one of the guys that that's here, uh, he follows Andy a lot, and he'll show me some of his videos. And he would be driving around delivering pizzas and recording videos in his car. Okay, so I I leave the listener to guess how Andy ends up stumbling into <laughs> the pizza ha the PizzaGate child rape warehouse. As these, as these pardoned criminals are, you know, driving an SUV through the front door, <laughs> and Andy's trying to deliver his pizzas. Okay, so yeah. how is but, this book not selling thousands of copies a day? I don't know. So, and I, I listened to three or four of his videos. So that one of the two chapters that Andy's in is him. It's his recording. It's him doing a video while these idiot rednecks are in front of him in his beat up Rav Four. Okay. Meta upon meta. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And he's like, could you, what's the matter with you people? Get out of my way. I'm delivering pizzas, you know, to the children that are being yeah. groomed to be raped. But yeah. <laughs> so, so I, uh, so I wrote, and I also did not kill Andy in a novel nice. because he did not volunteer to be in it. <laughs> he doesn't deserve it. He doesn't deserve it. Right, right. So I, uh, I just felt like I had to do Thunderbird for a while. I put it away and I wasn't going to finish it. Uh, and the, the same thing with the, uh, the filthy fear. But I had to. Uh, I, I, honestly, I got bored with it after I got done writing about how all these guys got locked up because that was the fun part for me. Because mm. I'm not plotting a story. I'm just like regurgitating accounts of like what guys that I used to work with on a night crew told me about when they got locked up. So, uh, so, so that's it. Uh, the uh, uh, hope uh, I'm going to ask my editor to send uh, uh, Andy a PDF of the. Uh, of I was going to say, does he know? He should be. I, I think somebody told him, uh, like a mutual reader, t emailed me and said, ah, I told that uh, I reviewed Andy's books before, and he knew about it. He pulled one of my quotes from a review and put it on the back of one of his books. Oh, okay. So he probably, you know. So I've never d talked to anything 
I've, I've never met Andy or talked to him or, or anything like that, but um, it, it, I guess he knows I exist. Yeah. And uh, because I reviewed one of his books. And so uh, uh, hopefully he'll eventually get a copy of The Filthy Fifth. Uh, apologies yeah. again to Sam, but uh. <laughs> Sam needs a copy, and then maybe maybe I'll reach out to Andy and see. But after I read it, because it sounds great to me. Um, James, should we call it a call it a night and um, tentatively? It's up, it's up to you. It's your podcast. Um, uh, I'm going to go get drunk with the Irishman from New Jersey uh, okay. when we're done talking here. But okay. Uh, that's going to go on for a while, so... Well, maybe we'll try and do this again next year. Okay. Yeah, that sounds great.